It's only days away. It will affect the rest of the world, whether we like it or not, and its outcome is inextricably linked with technology. Yes, this week on Download This Show, the US election is nearly here, and with it comes a maelstrom of online interference, tech companies scrambling to deal with misinformation, and probably worse. I mean, it's 2020, that's just how things go now. Also on the show, uh, gone before we knew ye. Uh, streaming service and one-word punchline, Quibi calls it quits, and he is the tech magnate they call the Hermit King, whose reign has affected the vast majority of mobile phones around the world in some way or another. So who is it? Let's find out. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed. It is a brand new episode of Download This Show and we are joined by an editor with Information Security Media Group. It's a mouthful every single time. Jeremy Kirk, welcome back to Download This Show. How are you? Thank you very much, Mark. Good, good. <laughs> and she is the co-founder and CEO of Girl Geek Academy. She's sunshine every time we have her on the show. Sarah Moran, welcome back. Happy to be here. <laughs> See, you lived up to it. <laughs> this is the most sunshiny <laughs> intro ever. Uh, and yet, let's start with the apocalypse. Uh, we are days away from, I was going to call it the most tumultuous US election in living memory, and then I realised that like they've all been tumultuous in my lifetime anyway. There's never been one that's not tumultuous. This one does have an edge of the apocalypse to it, Jeremy. And of course you are, you're an American voter. You're, um, you're registered in Florida, even though you live in Australia. And one of the big conversations that's been bubbling up as we do get to the pointing end is about foreign interference. We know that there was foreign interference in the last US election. And of course it's becoming a bigger issue this election too, Jeremy. Yeah, absolutely. So last week the US government said that Iran and Russia were kind of probing election systems and probing local governments, computer systems. So, and also the US government pinned on Iran uh, several thousand emails that were sent out to registered Democratic voters in states like Florida and others. And so these emails basically said, vote for Trump or else. It was very threatening and menacing. And it had some of the emails actually had the names and addresses of the people that they were sent to. So um, there was also a video included in some of the messages that uh, showed someone fraudulently filling out using voter registration from several states to fill out fraudulent federal ballots that could be mailed in. So the big question was, well, where did these where did the Iranians or this Iranian backed group get this voter registration information? And it's it's really kind of interesting. Um, like a, uh, I'm registered to vote in Florida and Florida has one of the most sort of permissive uh, schemes for access to voter registration data. So, for example, you can find for Florida voters online, you can find their full names, their addresses, their birth dates, their phone numbers, and their email addresses. So it's pretty clear, and also it, it signifies the party affiliation that a voter has. So it's clear that this group gathered that information and then sent out these emails. So the question is kind of like, well, why why is all this information available? And you know, voter registration information is available for transparency reasons. But I think in the U.S., uh, a lot of these access laws were probably designed uh, before the, the the sort of dawn of the commercial internet and schemes like identity theft, when this information could be abused. And it contrasts sharply with how Australia does it as well. 
Is that a consistent pattern across the US or does it vary from state to state, county to county in terms of what kinds of information are available for voters and and what's not available? Yeah, exactly. It varies by state. So some states will allow you to go in and see the data but not make any copies of it. Florida actually will, it updates the data monthly and it will actually send you a, a thumb drive or a disk with all of the data. So what's happened is when I registered to vote in Florida, I gave them a unique email address so I would know what kind of communications, like who had that address. There was only one source it could have come from, the Florida voter registration role. So over the years, I've gotten like loads of like investment schemes and real estate <laughs> schemes. And so basically commercial companies have scooped up this data and just use it to spam people. I think as a voter, you know, you should be able to, it should be open, but it should have some restrictions on the kind of data, and especially in a day, you know, in these days when your phone number and your email address, or you can reach out directly to people, you know, you shouldn't have that data made public. So it's important to also to contrast this with how Australia does it. So the Australian Electoral Commission will allow you to go in and inspect the voter registration roll, but you can't make any copies of it. You can't take any photographs and it only contains your name and your address. And so that limits the amount of personal information and also raises the bar. You know, you can't get this information electronically. You actually have to go to the um, office and view it. So political parties are given this data, and I'm not sure how exactly they're given that data, probably electronically. And they also give it out to researchers. But here, you know, we're, it's very fortunate that it's a, it's a lot more restricted in what people can get a hold of. This is peak Florida. They are very open and transparent. And one of the ways that we see that is, you know how you always hear those curly stories from Florida, like Florida man rides a crocodile to school. Um, Florida man of election. (laughs) And everyone thinks like, oh, okay, so uh, there must be a lot of stuff that goes down in Florida. But actually it's about the uh, Florida culture of making sure that all of this stuff is published and available. So when news outlets go for the quirky stories, they know that Florida is going to have published every single one. And so it really is on brand for Florida to have this level of transparency, which I, I find really fascinating. Totally. But also, I guess the other component to the, this is that it must make it incredibly hard to police or reform if there is these sort of huge inconsistencies in terms of what's available for for voters in, say, Florida compared to Minnesota and all these other places. It sort of it's it sort of adds to the general overarching confusion that is the US presidential election, Jeremy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um you know, uh, it feeds into the whole misinformation thing, too, because because this stuff is what Iran was trying to do was kind of create doubt in the electoral process. And, you know, you don't even have to look outside of the U.S. to actually see this. I mean, the governor, the former governor of Arkansas, who's Mike Huckabee, whose daughter, Sarah, was President Trump's spokeswoman uh, for some time, tweeted yesterday that he went or, or the other day that he went to vote in person. And then he came home and said he filled out a bunch of federal ballots for his parents and it's deceased grandparents. And so there you have somebody who's, you know, somewhat prominent in the Republican Party casting doubt on on democratic processes. So it it just really doesn't help. Sarah, we know that uh, the big social media companies, your Facebooks, are preparing for election day. We're expecting it to be tumultuous. We're expecting misinformation. What are the sorts of things they actually have planned? Um, So it's kind of like a suite of tools that they're deploying at once. Um, And it really will change what American 
audience will actually experience uh, as content on the platform. Now, this is being criticised from both sides of government that, you know, this is really going to change the way that people engage with the election. And so Facebook are just kind of like, well, we're getting criticised from both sides. We're going to, we've, we've, we've made our decisions. This is how we're going to, to tackle it. One of the things I understand they're going to do, Jeremy, is that they're actually going to hold off on on announcing it or letting letting candidates claim the election. Walk me through why they would do that exactly. Yeah, absolutely. I think they're afraid of uh, one of the parties coming out and saying that they've prematurely announcing results. And I think we can all guess which party that possibly would be. So what they want to do is make sure is also not to discourage voting too, because voting may still be going on in person on November 3rd. And so they're going to put banners, like I think Facebook is going to put this voter information center on Facebook and Instagram. And that's going to have links to sources like Reuters saying that, uh, you know, the election hasn't been decided. Here's a source for accurate election information. Um, and I think Google is also changing its autocomplete suggestions. So if people are like looking for election results, which everybody's going to be clamoring for, it's going to direct them to the, uh, they have a partnership with the Associated Press. And so this is a way to kind of also just say, okay, voting is not over yet. Nothing has actually been announced because the fear is, right? Because President Trump has already said he, he possibly may not step aside and uh, virtually from the first day of, of being in office in 2016 was claiming that there was voter fraud that led him to losing the popular vote. Um, you know, they're tweaking this to, to ensure that misinformation doesn't get out and doesn't hate voting. Mm. There's a range of changes actually that are happening on social media services. Some of them, I think, are directly linked to the election. Some of them are more just trying to deal with misinformation as a whole. And one of the interesting ones I I, and I, we had talked about it previously on the show, but I, they've clearly rolled it out and I just noticed it the other day, which is if you try to retweet an article, Sarah, and you haven't read it, Twitter now stops you. It says, hey, have you read the article? Have you, has, have you encountered this yet? <laughs> I did when it first rolled out. I haven't since, but I'm now confused as to whether or not I'm just very good at reading all the articles because it's not something I've been Maybe you're a good internet user and I'm a bad one. <laughs> <laughs> but but I must have done it right. Like clearly, I I would have. I'm I'm you know I'm also human. Of course I would have. And and Twitter hasn't tried to stop me. There was the idea that they'll make you add a comment when you retweet something. And so I've seen a couple of retweets that have just been full stops because people are like, no, I actually just want to retweet this person. And so, you know, these things are changing the way that we communicate. I'm getting some cheeky DMs from people saying, hey, am I am I doing the right thing here? They don't know how to communicate anymore on Twitter. So it's an interesting thing. The is really interesting though because I actually think it, I think its only real purpose is to slow people down. It's to stop people from from retweeting too fast and basically like forcing them to consider what it is they're trying to say with the retweet. Well, yeah, I think so. But I think it's a pretty weak effort on Twitter to stop the problem of uh, just spreading misinformation and just kind of like flicking things on without actually reading them. I, I, I just feel like it's not really substantive. It doesn't really solve that many problems. And um I mean, people don't think before they tweet anyway, when they're actually writing a tweet. I mean, I, I just don't see that that's going to actually prevent people. I mean, I think it's good to emphasize, like, you know, we all have to be aware of what we read and what we consume and what we share and also be concerned about the veracity of that information. But I think that this slight change is going to I don't think it's going to change the equation on whether information that's grossly false is shared versus information that's, you know, verified. I'm going to jump in with a disagree. So with the um, current setup, so essentially what's changing is that 
you can't just straight retweet. You need to quote, quote retweet um, some of these tweets. Oh, that's too many tweets in a sentence. Um, <laughs> just the right amount. <laughs> but I think what it's actually trying to slow down is bots or, or uh, humans that work to act like bots across the internet. Um, so, so it is much easier for um, a bot or a bot person uh, to go through and just press retweet on tweets, right? And then people look at the number and go, wow that tweet was retweeted 15,000 times. But to slow a bot down and make a bot quote retweet, um, I, I think that is an intervention that will actually be quite quite healthy in, in slowing down bots. When I grow up, I want to be a bot person. <laughs> it's funny though because it, it, what it has done is it's highlighted a, a behaviour that I didn't realise I had, which is a lot of the time, because I don't tweet a great deal, but when I do, usually it's just to retweet other people. It's just like, you know, sort of this is a thing that I think you should read and I don't have a great deal of commentary on it. And in my mind, it's always been like platforming other people, pushing them ahead. And now I'm realising that actually uh, I'm sending a lot of retweets that are you know, this exclamation mark. And it's like, I don't know if this is better or worse. It feels worse. But, I mean, do you think it has a material impact, I guess, on the culture of Twitter? If, if, if not the, the, the sort of the technical issue of bots, Sarah, do you think it's going to change the way people actually interact on the platform? Oh, I have such strong feels about this. So essentially when I retweet or see something retweeted, I'm seeing it from the original source, right? Whereas... Um, when someone has to quote retweet, I'm seeing it through that person's filter as if they've said, oh, I believe this needs to be lifted up for this reason. And oh, to be honest, Mark, I don't care what your opinion is of why you retweeted it. I just want to read the original, you know? Um, and I, I, I don't know, it, it definitely changes how we will be communicating because instead my feed will be the people I follow's comments on tweets that have been tweeted as opposed to just show me you know, surface the most important tweets, the most important information, the most important news to me. Um, because I, I rely, I follow a lot of journalists that I use as filters to get me that information. And I think that it adds a buffer to that, that may make it less interesting. What do you think, Jeremy? Do you think it has the potential to change the the culture, the nature of the interactions? Oh, I think so. I mean, I think it probably also helps to kind of contextualize because Sarah, if you see Mark has retweeted something and he has a comment on it. So you at least have a little bit of perspective of your friend's opinion on it rather than just kind of read this. So maybe it adds, yeah, a little bit deeper context. But I, I also want to say I completely agree with Sarah's point about stopping bots too. And that perhaps Twitter, Twitter hasn't highlighted that maybe it does have that kind of security purpose as well behind it. One of my favorite things in the last couple of days as, as the, the new functions rolled out is as a whole bunch of journalists who have actually written the article and they're trying to retweet it went, I wrote this. I don't need to read it. <laughs> I'm sure the kinks will be worked out. Well, no, I mean, there's actually no guarantee of that happening. It's the internet in 2020. Uh, download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Mark Fennell is my name. Our guest this week, Jeremy Kirk from Information Security Media Group and Girl Geek Academy CEO and founder Sarah Moran. And it is the news I had dreaded the most. We felt it was coming. Uh, <laughs> the world's saddest, most beleaguered streaming service, Quibi, has died. Sarah, R.I.P. No! So, okay, we should just go back a little bit. So if you've never heard of Quibi, right, uh, it was. It was unveiled to massive uh, fanfare earlier this year. It was direct to mobile. You could watch it in vertical. You could watch it in horizontal. Huge name stars. And, of course, the thing was everything was short, sort of five to seven-minute episodes. 
And it, uh, well, actually, let, let, before we like pick apart what went wrong, what went wrong, was it, in your view, Sarah, a good thing? Oh, okay. So I've been a Quibi fan for the total of a week, <laughs> uh, and that's because. <laughs> <laughs> yep. But, which, you know, the internet. But also, so I didn't realise it was free in Australia until they announced it was shutting down. Neither did I um, until after so- I'd paid for it. <laughs> I signed up and then they were like, it's free in Australia. I'm like, what am I doing? Oh, you win that one. Um, and so I, so then I tried it out. I mean, and, and to remember that a week ago is post what has been the year of TikTok. So I've been TikTok as my mobile content stream and then I'm kind of, I'm not over it, but... I'm, you know, it's it's not as shiny anymore. So so I flicked over to Quibi, and I I had heard of this, and this was the one reason I would have paid for it. I have been I have watched all of Chrissy's Court now, <laughs> so me and Chrissy Teigen, uh, she is my judge. It's amazing. And then there's this other show uh, called um, like Murder House Flip, Murder House where Flip, where they take yeah, Ray like, Johnson's this- favorite show on Quibi. <laughs> She'll be devastated. <laughs> so there's all this really niche content where people are like, I don't know, let's just try this. And you have these amazing creatives just doing off-the-wall niche content. Um, so Murder House Flip is, you know, someone died in a house, let's renovate it and sell it. Yay. Um, and so uh, it is this, it is it is perfect content in six to seven chunks. I like to watch food when I have a meal. And so if I watch 30 minutes worth of content, I'm, it's a too long a meal. But, you know, you're six to seven, I can get two apps in over lunch. <laughs> so I love it. But also I'm so mad at them for not getting this right, Mark. Well, I, there is a question mark about whether or not they were fully at fault, right? I mean, there was Ooh. a pandemic. Nobody, it's clearly designed yeah. for commuters, Jeremy, and there was not yeah. as nearly as much commuting that happened in 2020. Is is that fair? And that, certainly they have credited it as being in large part, no, they're not completely the fault of the pandemic. Do you think that's a, a fair criticism of why it's died, Jeremy? Yeah, it seems to be bad timing. I mean, it seems to be an attractive service, I mean, in a way, and perfect for commuting. But if people aren't going anywhere, they're, I mean, they're using their phones a lot. But actually, if you're watching a movie on your phone, people watch full movies on their phones? Well, not really. So you probably have the option to, if you had the option to watch it on a larger screen, you probably would. I feel like it just wasn't really right timing for it. But it seems quite clever in the in the sense that you can watch things in portrait or landscape mode and kind of like the short form kind of series. That seems like quite attractive, too. Um, but, yeah, it was just bad timing. I think The Guardian reported that um, as of July, it only had 72,000 paying customers. So I, I guess as most people's three month free subscriptions ran out, that was that was kind of it. And also just with the glut of other things out there. I mean, TikTok <laughs> undeniably would would eat into that sort of uh uh, it's sort of proposition to consumers and Netflix and everything else. So perhaps just bad timing. 72,001, this guy. Sarah, I mean, <laughs> there is a pretty distinctive difference between what Quibi was offering and what TikTok is offering. I mean, Quibi, these were these are Hollywood productions. They were like, they were really high end. Mm. It's basically, it looked and felt like Netflix, except on your phone, whereas TikTok kind of isn't that. Is it? Is it fair to compare the two? Look, I think you've both been way too gentle on Quibi um, in terms of crediting the, you know, the lack of their success to the pandemic. You can't throw everything into that. I mean, they ran a content company during the year where all we could do was sit at home and watch content. Um, I am so mad at them True. because they had so much money. They had all the money, all the money to make this work. And 
so I, sorry, I am frustrated. I just need <laughs> I to vent. Tell. I can oh, so mad. <laughs> Hot button issue for me. So basically, they have all this money, right? They have all this content. How do you market a new service with content? How much of that marketing did I get? diddly squat like they didn't try to lure me in as a customer or even to to raise brand awareness through the content that they had they had a bucket ton of money in terms of startup cash they had uh, way too much and I think that may have been their problem to be honest and then in terms of the content it wasn't like it was like they basically shot it that you could flip your phone around like it wasn't mobile first in any way and to your point about it trying to be like it was Netflix quality on mobile whereas TikTok is I don't know I just looked at my phone I didn't even do my hair and I shot a cool thing that went viral um so there was definitely a different type of content that they were creating that wasn't actually what we want to watch when we watch on mobile. So I think it's product and finding the market, which are two things that are you must do as a startup, that they that they stuffed it really. And um, now nah, I have no sympathy for them, but I'm mad at them. <laughs> there, there are a few other things that I think are worth looking at. I mean, some of these shows could find life at other networks. And I know some of that has already been sort of muted. Mm -hmm. I know there's a a few shows that are owned by CBS and and whatnot. Is it likely that some of these other shows, Jeremy, will end up on other services like your Netflixes and and YouTube? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if it's compelling content, somebody will want to take it up. Um, You know, Quibi was, or how do you say it? Quibi? Quibi? Quibi was... uh, It can also be pronounced with the letters RIP. Anything's acceptable at this point. But I, I would see, like, for content producers, I mean, if it's good content, it'll get picked up somewhere else. Uh, I think all the streaming services are on the lookout for good things. Um, one point about the rise of TikTok, Sarah. I note in the most recent update of Instagram, they've rolled out Reels, which is, for all intents and purposes, a TikTok ripoff, in the Instagram stream. Do you think TikTok should be afraid? No, uh, I really don't. I think TikTok uh, have such good control over the algorithms and over what people want to see. Therefore, you page is for me, you know, like it is really highly targeted. And I don't know that Instagram have the DNA to layer that on top of their current infrastructure. Um, and it really is a generational difference. You know, Instagram is for millennials and TikTok is Gen, a Gen, Gen Z, whichever alphabet letter we the are young to. Ones. The, young, the young the ones, ones that will inherit the world and fix all of our problems. <laughs> Um, But what I do think is interesting uh, for Quibi, like rip Quibi and post content, is that you have um, space for places like Netflix, Apple Plus, like all of the streaming services to create shorter content. And I think that is what Quibi was trying to do, but I didn't need an extra service to provide it. I think that, um, as I said, you know, I will happily sit down and there are so few content that is sub 22 minutes. Mm. Um, I think there is space for that. And I think that uh, if Quibi were to live on, it will be via the content in other services. And I hope that everyone learns a lesson that we don't need another streaming app. One one more thing about this. One of the things I, I do find really attractive about TikTok, and, and I guess to some extent Instagram, is this idea that it's almost like this infinite scroll, right? That, you know, you can just click through and there'll all be something that instantly starts playing. And it's, it's, it's actually reminiscent of tel- like you know, free-to-air television because there's you just flick from channel to channel and you you enter something midstream as it's as it's going. Do you think 
if Quibi had that kind of functionality where you could, you know, the moment you turned it on was something watchable, instead of that almost that lean back functionality like you get on, on Netflix or Stan, which is like you pick a show and it's got a nice title card. Do you think if it, it moved closer to that, the moment you open it up, something's playing, it might have helped absorb people into that, that world easier? Maybe. I think there is a cultural connection that happens with TikTok that you're a part of something, um, that you understand the in-jokes, that the memes are happening and you dip in and out of the stream, which is more akin to what Twitter used to feel like, um, but it's it's visual and it's using video. Um, I think what you're talking about is a bit like Netflix have released a um, start watching button. Uh, they, they launched it ages ago, but now it's actually on the homepage of Netflix that you can just click the button, start watching. And you know what? I've done it a couple of times and I'm, I'm a fan. So I think that idea of being able to flick through the channels rather than looking at all the title cards, maybe watching a trailer and then stopping and not watching anything, um, I think there's definitely a gap and Quibi could have filled it, but they didn't. And we have until December 1 to watch all of the episodes of Murder House Flip. (laughs) (laughs) Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. We have Sarah Moran and Jeremy Kirk, our guest this week. Mark Fennell is my name. And certainly uh, of all the big tech hardware companies, we tend to talk about the apples and whatnot of the world, but Samsung is one of the most important technology companies in the world. And uh, it's, I guess it suffered quite a sad milestone this week, Jeremy. Um, Who died? Yeah, Ikun Hee, who is the son of the uh, founder of Samsung. So his father founded Samsung in the 1930s when it was selling uh, dried fish and fruit to China. So Samsung ended up becoming, uh, you know, the the largest company in South Korea. It's got its hands now in everything from memory ship, chips to shipbuilding uh, to insurance to entertainment. And uh, so, yes, his his passing is uh, is significant in a way. I mean, the family, it's been controlled by a family. Uh, So which is um, amazingly, Samsung contributes, I think, something like 20 percent to South Korea's GDP. So the the company has been very tied to the country and it's it's rising fortunes since the end of the Korean War. Yes, he was uh, he was known as the Hermit King. He really uh, he really spoke, but also presided over a fairly significant change in not just uh, the company, but I guess in in electronics worldwide. Because Samsung is one of the biggest um, phone manufacturers, amongst other things. And I know millions of Australians have Samsung phones. Why is it that they went into electronics, given the sort of the origin of the family business? Do you know? I think it was just a move to uh, that's where business was growing. And so, like, I think about the early 90s, Samsung was already the largest provider of memory chips in the world. And so you think of, uh, you know, Samsung and Apple as being competitors, but Samsung supplied memory chips to Apple phones for years and years and years. And so that also helped fuel its own mobile phone business, uh, you know, which is huge. But the company has made everything from, like, you know, flat screen TVs to aircraft engines. Um, so it's been just one of the leading R&D centers also in South Korea. You know, the Hermit King is the perfect phrase for it, right? Like they're, they're, they're not the showy ones releasing the press releases about the new technology. They're the ones who are like, technology is going here and we'll be right there in lockstep. So um, some of the things that I'm really excited about, um, so with Samsung, uh, they fund, as you've said, a lot of uh, R&D, but also accelerators. And, and I'm most excited about, uh, I'm using Theta, which is a cryptocurrency, and Samsung are going to deploy it to all of their televisions um, very shortly, which means that our content distribution networks will be powered by blockchain. And I'm super excited about that in the most nerdy possible way. <laughs> Why is it, do you think, Sarah, that 
I mean, I sort of know the answer to this question, but, but why is it you think that Samsung doesn't get the same level of fanish attention that the likes of Apple and Google get? Is it just because it's, it's not from America? Do you think that's as simple as that? It's possibly that, but also I would say that it's part of their brand strategy to not do that because all of the other fancy pants technology innovation companies, they, they will be happy to be like, we've announced a thing and then they'll can it, you know, 12 months later if it doesn't work. Whereas Samsung just don't do that. They are consistent. All right. That is all we have time for on the show this week. Huge thank you to Sarah Moran, co-founder and CEO of Girl Geek Academy. Lovely to have you back on the show. Lovely to be here. And Jeremy Kirk from Information Security Media Group, thank you so much. Looking forward to seeing how your election goes. Oh, dear. (laughs) (laughs) I love how I've just, like, made it yours. It's like the whole thing is is your problem you have to deal with. (laughs) Uh, If you enjoyed the show, make sure you leave a review on whichever podcasting app you happen to encounter us on. My name has been and will probably continue to be Mark Fennell, and I'll catch you on the next episode of Download This Show.